Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. In the time since we last did ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey, uh, Nick Backstrom made agents irrelevant. That's that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if everyone could just have as good of a relationship that Nicholas Backstrom seems to have with Ted Leonsis and the entire uh, Capitals organization, then we wouldn't need agents at all. Five years, $46 million, an average annual value of $9.2 million against the cap, some bonus stuff. Like, he did the thing. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe an agent could have gotten him more ridiculous term or something, but I mean, from a dollar, from a dollar's perspective, he did quite good for himself and he keeps his own agent fee. I mean, this is genius. Like, uh, how much more in real dollars does Nick Backstrom get for cutting the agents out of the equation? He's quite smart. And I've got to say the one guy that's probably quite not happy about this is Braden Holpe because this is kind of foreshadowing what I believe to be true is that the Capitals now will have not enough money to sign Holpe to a long-term extension. They haven't talked to her yet, and it's now the Ilya Samsonov era. But look, good on Nicholas Backstrom. He's making other guys like Drew Doughty, who didn't get the best deal when he did it himself, look kind of dumb. And uh, the Caps got their guy for another five years. Look, I understand what you're saying about Holpe. I completely understand that. I get it. I get the Capitals' goaltending situation. That said, if he fires his agent and hires Nick Backstrom— I'm sure he'll get the deal that he's looking for with the Capitals. Nick Backstrom is now the new Pat Brisson. This is his second career. Anyways, coming up on ESPN on Ice, we're going to talk about how the Devils fire their general manager in the middle of the season. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some big questions surrounding the playoff races, and we're going to talk to Josh Smith. Now, who is Josh Smith? Josh Smith is the guy behind a site and a Twitter feed called Scouting the Refs that you may be familiar with. And we have a really good conversation with him about the state of officiating in the National Hockey League in 2020. Still weird to say that. All that and more on this edition of ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And Emily, we begin this week with the news that broke earlier this week. Um, the Devils fired Ray Shiro. Uh, they fired Ray Shiro after Ray Shiro fired a coach, after Ray Shiro traded the franchise's top player uh, in December. They fired him before the trade deadline and before the draft, which tells you that they didn't really have much faith in him uh, operating those things for the franchise. Tom Fitzgerald, his lieutenant, takes over on an interim basis. Most interestingly, Marty Brodeur uh, also will advise the hockey operations department coming over from the business side of things for the Devils. And uh, they press forward with this new crew. Um, you know... I, Giving Fitzgerald this kind of runway to see if he's the guy is is a smart decision. I think he's been one of the rising stars amongst assistant GMs for a long time. Almost got the Minnesota Wild job before they gave it to <laughs> Paul Fenton. Um, so that's a smart deal, and, and I'm sure that they think he's going to be the guy. And there was a time in my life when I thought that this was idiotic. Like, if it wasn't working with one dude for five years, why would you hand the keys over to his buddy who – also had a hand in things not working for five years. But then 
the Capitals won the Stanley Cup with <laughs> with Brian McClellan as their general manager who was uh, working underneath George McPhee for many, many years. So it kind of turned me around on the idea that maybe the number two guy just has to have a little bit more influence than he had under the previous number one guy. Um, but what did you make of this ratio firing? The timing definitely felt suspect, especially as you mentioned, Ray Shiro did so much to change the complexion of this team in the last, you know, less than six months. But I think what it really came down to is ownership looked at this team and said, I don't know what direction we're going in. Ray Shiro, you know, came in this summer and made all these bold proposals and ownership signed off on them. Like, hey, we got the number one pick in the draft. We're going to go all in. We're going to get P.K. Subban. We're going to acquire Nikita Gusev. We're going to sign Wayne Simmons to a dollar one year deal even though he's kind of coming off a bad year and we're going to make the playoffs and and all of those moves didn't work out there really wasn't a contingency plan when goaltending once again became an issue even though we knew it was going to be an issue entering the year he didn't have a contingency plan and I think ownership looked at it and it was like you know what we've got to get someone with a long-term vision that we can buy into I, I think there's two things that definitely played into this one Taylor Hall is a player that ownership really, really liked. And I know fans are going to say, well, Taylor Hall wasn't going to re-sign a contract in season anyway. He was always going to want to test for agency. That was always his desire. But they couldn't have been pleased with the way that this kind of went down, where it didn't feel like the Devils even had a shot and they didn't get a great return for him. I also think there's something to do with John Hines and his salary, the fact that he got scooped up so quickly and, and Ray Shearer almost even gave him an endorsement to go to Nashville. You know, I, I can't remember the exact salary Hines was making. It's somewhere under $2 million. But uh, Shiro negotiated with David Poyle to, you know, split the rest of the sum of this year. And, you know, yeah. that makes sense for the Predators. Obviously, they're a team that doesn't really have deep pockets and doesn't shell out huge money for coaches and things like that. But it probably didn't look great to the Devils owners that like, hey, our guy got fired and is scooped up by a team that should be contending really quickly. So I think all of those things were compounding factors. Yeah, on top of the fact that, you know, the contract that he handed out uh, to Hines is the one that he was on uh, and kind of backed the wrong horse there. Um, five years, one playoff appearance. It took a miracle run by Keith Kincaid and goal and a, a heart trophy campaign by Taylor Hall for the doubles just to make the playoffs that season before being dispatched in the first round. Um, you know, the Rangers are more competitive than the Devils right now. And Shiro's been there for five years. It's, it's fact of life. And, uh, I think there's ample re- reason for him to no longer be there. Um, I will say that the cupboard is a bit less bare than it was when Lou Lamarillo left. Uh, so you have to give Shiro some marks there. Unfortunately for him though, you know, when the Devils went in the tank for a few seasons, uh, they didn't come up with Sid Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. They came up with Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes. Now that's good. That's a great start. There's going to be a lot of GMs, uh, and GM candidates in this league that would not hesitate to take this job with two young centers anchoring this lineup for the next 10 years. Um, but both of them are really good, but maybe not necessarily on the level of some of the franchise players that we've seen drafted. Um, so it, it, you know, the plan that enabled Ray Shiro to win a cup with Pittsburgh didn't happen in New Jersey. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Back on Brodor for a second. So Marty, if you'll remember, retired as a blue. Still very hard for me as a Devils fan to admit that. And then worked in their hockey operations department for three seasons. Also did a little bit of goaltending uh, coaching on the side. 
He left that gig, came to the Devils, went into business administration for them, basically saying that the life and the schedule of a general manager was too much like the life and schedule of a player, and he wasn't looking to do that anymore. He wanted to spend time with his five kids and his family. Now, I wonder what ownership is doing to lean on Marty here to become the next Joe Sackick, become the next Steve Eiserman, become the next franchise icon who takes over the franchise that beloves him and uh, and be the new GM of the Devils. I wonder if that's that's the long play here and they have him along for the ride. Give him a little taste. The old drug dealer thing, Emily. Give him a little taste. See if he likes it. And then hook him with the job. So my prediction on this is Marty Brodeur, as you mentioned, um, the ball's in his court. He can decide what he wants to do, what kind of lifestyle he wants to live. I see him as being named the team president. Oh. I think that's the direction we're heading in. And I see them either hiring Tom Fitzgerald in a more uh, permanent role. I think he'll get this opportunity to get FaceTime with ownership over the next few months. They'll really get to know him and they'll see, okay, wow, we've got a really good guy under our hand, um, under our, you know, under payroll already. Or they wait until the summer because I think there's other general managers. There's one I have in mind in particular. I'm not comfortable mm-hmm. saying it out loud on this podcast mm-hmm. that has a lot of experience and may or may not have won a Stanley Cup that may or may not be with his team next year and could mm-hmm. be available. And I could see the devils wanting experience, um, especially if they have, you know, that combination with Brodeur, they would feel like they're in a much more confident position. And this is the other thing I'll say with this ownership group. Remember, these are the same guys that own the Sixers. They're real into analytics, like they're into the process and that type of stuff. So I think anybody that they do hire at least has to be amenable or open to considering analytics <laughs> and uh, the non-traditional old school hockey ways of, well, he's a good old boy from Alberta, so we're going to draft him. Mm. Your tease is fascinating. I don't know why the Penguins would fire Jim Rutherford, but I will say this. I'm kidding. Uh, you're right. And, and I've been thinking a lot about how Josh Harris and, uh, and Blitzer have managed the Philadelphia 76ers for the last decade. That's a team that went in the tank for a long time. The quote unquote process be as bad as you possibly can to then circle around and be good. And at some point, they lost their patience with it. And the part of the equation that I can't quite figure out as I stand in front of the chalkboard like Goodwill Hunting is that did, did the St. Louis Blues poison the minds of this team to make them think that they should be like still making a push this season? <laughs> like, like if you're Ray Shiro, you're probably walking in that office and be like, when do I trade Andy Green and Sammy Vatanen? Like, did ownership, like, does ownership think uh, no? Actually, we're going to press forward. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to put the pedal down. We're not going to do this again. Like, is that the philosophical difference? Cause there's so, I feel like we have seen like six to seven millimeters of the iceberg on this story. And I feel like there's a ton we don't know about what the philosophy of ownership is and what the philosophy of Ray Shiro is. The only thing we have to go on is Josh Harris standing in front of those cameras and saying, we want to win. Well. Did the other guy want to not win for a little bit? <laughs> See if he can't hook himself, uh, you know, a top pick franchise player that we know is lurking in the draft this year. Who is to say? But I feel like there's a lot we don't know. And I wonder if the philosophical difference of, hey, we can turn this around versus actually let's suck for a little bit longer uh, was one of the things at the core of it. But fascinating stuff. 
and I like your uh, your prognostication on on Marty as a potential team president. Um, the one other thing about the Devils we should probably mention is that Aline Nezardine is uh, as of this podcast eight eight and three. The Devils have played extraordinarily well. Um, one might say they ruined a multi uh, a multi team parlay that I had in Vegas on my quick trip there this weekend uh, by beating the Tampa Bay Lightning. Did not see that coming. Um, but as my wife told me, that's why you don't bet against your own team. Uh, but do you think there's a chance that the interim coach may become the head coach, or do you think that's entirely contingent on who the GM is? I think it's entirely contingent on the GM, but I do think that Nazardine is the guy that we all assumed was just uh, promoted to babysit this team for the next couple <laughs> months and, like, quite frankly, he's an expensive babysitter. Um, but I wouldn't rule him out. I, I think, like you said, if if he proves that he can motivate these guys in the right way, and that's what he has proved over the last couple of weeks because they look like a much better team than they are, especially with the personnel they have and the way they started the season, um, he should get a fair shake and a good look at being the permanent coach. Indeed. Speaking of babysitting, our guest today is Josh Smith. And he runs Scouting the Refs, a fascinating site that deals with the ins and outs of NHL officiating, tracking their calls, looking at who's doing what, biases and what have you. And this is a fascinating conversation about the state of officiating in today's game. All right. Joining us now on the line is Josh Smith, the genius behind Scouting the Refs, a um a feed and a site that you are probably familiar with if you are familiar with uh, little blibs and blurbs and retweets about who the officials are uh, for certain games, but also if you've dove into the tendencies of refs and other stats surrounding the Zebros, this guy's behind them. So first question, Josh, how did you uh, discover your affinity for all things hockey officiating? Uh, it's, uh, it's it's pretty interesting. You know, I've always been a fan of uh, officials and uh you know, the types of calls and, and what goes into them. And as a hockey fan, you, you certainly have opinions one way or the other on, on calls. And uh, this all started when I was doing some freelance writing and looking to do playoff previews. And I saw that everybody was basically covering all the bases. They'd broken it down, you know, forward matchups, defense matchups, coaches, things like that. Um, and nobody was really looking at the officiating. Um, so I started to break down, you know, what, what happens? You know, Dan O'Halloran works game one out west. What's he going to bring to game two out east? Does he call more penalties? Does he call fewer? Uh, I realized there were no stats on that. Uh, so I had to do some of the legwork and, and start putting things together, and it was pretty manual at first, but uh, built out the stats so then I could see, you know, what types of calls do they make? What are their tendencies? And uh, since then, it's it's grown. It's, it's basically snowballed over the past uh, just about seven years now where, uh, you know, we really have an opportunity to break down calls, provide rule explanations and things like that to, to dig into not only what are these guys calling, but, but why and, and what goes into the calls that they've made. Josh, you've really cornered a niche here, and I'm sure that the refs do appreciate it because uh, the NHL doesn't typically let them talk. They're very restrictive with their media access, and I think these guys like to be humanized. They like to show them that you know they're humans making these decisions and trying their best. So I'm just curious, what type of relationships have you been able to build with these refs? Do you have much contact with them? What's that like? I do, absolutely. Um, you know, I know there's a there's a group of refs, or there's a, a bunch of them. I can't speak for all uh, who are are happy that. If somebody's out there speaking on their behalf to try to provide some additional detail or explanation around rules, calls, video reviews, things like that. Uh, you know, we get the explanations from the league on, on why maybe a video review went a certain way, but we never get that additional eta- detail from the officials. So, uh, you know, while they can't speak on the record, while the, the, you know, the league doesn't want to 
put them in that spot where they're forced to uh, address the media on certain calls. Uh, I, I have spoken to a number of guys who are happy that, that somebody's at least trying to fight that fight for them. So, uh, yeah, the league is, is pretty tight-lipped when it comes to officials speaking out, even interviews and things like that, and certainly not around specific game calls. Uh, but I do have a pretty good relationship, at least off the record, to get understanding on you know, why is a call made a certain way? How are we interpreting the rule? What goes into the decision-making process on a, a, a particular situation? So that, you know, hopefully I can bring that to a larger audience and fans, coaches, players, everybody can be a little bit more informed. What's the uh, biggest disconnect, you think, between um, fans and what the officials do? I think the biggest gap is really that, that understanding of what goes into it. You know, I think a lot of fans... And uh, to a certain extent, some coaches and, and even players, based on what we've seen on their rulebook interpretations, they take a rule at, at face value or limited understanding. They don't really know every facet of it or, or how it's being applied. You know, we always joke that the big black box of goaltender interference, nobody knows what goaltender interference is. And there's so many different ways that the, the play develops. There's Each situation is unique. Uh, there's so many things that go into it that the officials are looking at. And I think a better understanding of, you know, not just, hey, we reviewed the play, there's no goaltender interference, but this player did this, this is why it was goaltender interference. I think that kind of detailed explanation, that kind of understanding would help bridge that gap a little bit so it didn't feel quite as mysterious as to why sometimes things are called or, or some goals are overturned and others aren't. In your opinion, what has been the most wild, the most egregious, or the most interesting officiating moment of the season thus far? <laughs> oh, <laughs> this season we've had... Uh, We've had some fun ones. I mean, I, you know, you try to not look at some of the, the negative ones or the, the, the missed calls and things like that. It's, it's hard. Each, each situation is different. You don't know what position the guys are in. There have certainly been some suspendable hits that were a no-call on the ice uh, that we've seen. But, again, you know, I can't, I can't throw a guy under the bus when he's positioned and looking elsewhere when that hit takes place. Uh, these, these guys are the best in the world at their job. And, unfortunately, things are going to get missed, and, and player safety might be able to get them after the fact. But I think my highlight, personally, uh, has to go to uh, linesman Steve Barton uh, skating across, going down for an icing, trips over the blue line, and uh, still makes the icing call. So for, for me, at least, that was, that was my highlight so far this season. It's pretty awesome. High degree of difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned, you know, the, the the impetus of this thing was to kind of look at tendencies and, you know, track the calls and that kind of thing. Not, not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm not looking you to do a Greg Wyshynski, Tim Peel thing here or anything. But uh, do you think there's a uh, – Do you, have you found, like, examples of what you perceive to be biases – um, either against a certain team or maybe uh, with a certain type of call? Have you seen those kinds of tendency, tendencies that fans seem to believe exist? You know, I think the, the biggest thing is, 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 like you said, Greg, it's, it's really around tendencies. Uh, you know, so far this season, you'll see more calls out of guys like Steve Kazari and Chris Rooney, where uh, maybe a, a veteran like Dean Morton, he's, and, and even Dan O'Halloran, those guys are calling far fewer penalties. So if you've got a team that plays on the edge, if you've got a team that's pretty aggressive, uh, obviously a guy that calls fewer penalties is going to benefit them. A guy that calls a little bit tighter, that team might end up in the box more frequently. And I, I think the other interesting part is uh, how that plays out, uh, because strangely we have you know, winning streaks under certain officials, which uh, you know we'll, we'll have a team that's gone maybe seven straight games undefeated under a certain ref, and, and people say, well, that's biased. This guy is uh, obviously favoring that team. 
And it's, it's not always the case. Uh, obviously, there's a, you know, such a small sample size. But we've also got that same tendency coming up where a guy that calls a tight game, this team might benefit from those types of games where it's tight and, and they've got a good power play. So every time a penalty comes up, they can take advantage of that. And I think it's just strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes you have officials that line up well with certain teams and vice versa. And, and other times you have the opposite. So, Josh, officials inherently are pretty anonymous. If you call a really good game, ideally nobody's talking about you, right? Nobody knows who you are. Right. Uh, the person who goes against the grain is Wes McCauley. He's kind of a legend. He's got a personality. I'm just curious, because you have access to these guys and because you talk to them, what's his reputation like among other refs? Do they like the attention he gets? Are they jealous of it? Do they think it's bad for, for the profession, <laughs> good for the profession? <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some that are all over the map, but the, the guys that I've talked to all love it. Um, that, that's, that's Wes. Uh, that's who he is. It's not that he's putting on a character to, uh, you know, try to get that attention. It's not that he's just, you know, coming up with things so that he can go on the mic and say things. That's, that is who he is. That's, uh, that's his honest personality coming through there. And I, I, the guys that I've talked to, I'll, I'll appreciate that. Uh, that's what he brings to the table. At the same time, I, I don't feel like there's any pressure for anybody else to step up and, and follow suit, which a uh, few of the guys at least are relieved about because uh, they, they know that they're no competition to uh, Wes on the mic skills. Where are we with referees right now? Um, as Emily mentioned, you shouldn't know the names of the referees if they're doing a good job, but I increasingly, when I look at box scores, don't know who the hell any of these people are. <laughs> I feel like there's been such a turnover in the last decade uh, for veteran refs that we all knew their names. They, we, you know, we would frequently hear people chanting their names at times, uh, to a, a group of, of newer, younger refs that we simply don't know, um, or that, uh, are, are names that have become sort of unfamiliar, uh, maybe because we haven't spent enough time with, with them in the playoffs, for example. Uh, has there been a significant turnover? Uh, and, and how do you think it's affect officiating in the NHL? Well, we've seen, uh, chunks of retirements here and there you know you lost a bunch of guys during the lockout and then uh, even prior to that when they went to the two referee system they had to bring a lot of younger guys up so you had names on the back which made them more familiar uh, but as guys are are getting older uh, their careers are actually lengthening you know we've got dan o'halloran's late 50s out there he's still skating uh, and this mm. is his final season but uh, you know you've had guys with very long careers and very familiar names that we've heard all the way up so yeah, we've had a lot of retirements, uh, especially over the past uh, handful of seasons, and we'll have three or four this year as well. Uh, I think as the minor league guys are getting called up, and right now there's there's ten minor league referees and, and five linesmen that are splitting time between the NHL and the AHL, uh, we've never seen their names on the back of a the sweater. Uh, they've just got a number. It's hard to have that personality, and, and we see. We know Wes McCauley's well-known, but these guys don't have much chance to develop that kind of personality, especially in the, the four official system. You've got two refs out there sharing all the calls. So it's, it is something where the pipeline has been flowing through and we've seen, seen guys coming up. But, you know, like you guys have said, if, if you call a good game, people don't know your name. And the unfamiliar names usually get bypassed. Uh, even the clock controversy with the Blue Jackets earlier this year, uh, when Colin Campbell addressed it, he mentioned that referee Chris Schlenker was the, the one who was working the clock and, and had gone back and forth between the benches. But Dan O'Halloran was working that game. And, and on social media, uh, lots of people seem to skip over Schlenker and say, oh, O'Halloran messed this up. Well, I'm not going to say either guy messed it up, but the familiar name's the one that everybody was talking about. And, and I think that's, that's pretty typical. That's what we see is, that, hey, whether you like this guy or hate this guy, you remember his name. And unfortunately, the 
the bad calls or the uh, controversial calls are the ones that really tie that attachment in there. But there have been a lot of unfamiliar names. I think there's going to be more of them coming up as we keep rotating through, and uh, the familiar names will start to dwindle a little bit. And hopefully, you know, for their sake, these guys can stay on the, the good side of things when it comes to calls, and nobody starts to know their names for uh, nefarious reasons. So this is a question that I ask a lot of NHL players, and sometimes they get really good answers that are creative, and sometimes they're kind of stumped. I'm really <laughs> curious to see what you're, you say here. What's one rule change that we could make that would make the NHL better? Oh, there's uh, there's many. Uh, the, <laughs> the simplest one, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just cherry picking here. Uh, let's wipe out the trapezoid first of all. Uh, second, puck over glass be- becomes uh, an icing unless it's intentional, and and mm-hmm. I think those two would uh, cure a lot of grievances, <laughs> especially when it comes to logic in rules. I think you know the the rule book as it is is pretty confusing. It's got some conflicts in there. It's got some things that, that diametrically are, are opposite to each other when you start to break down the specifics. And I, I think it could be a lot cleaner, but you know, in its simplest state, we don't need trapezoid anymore. We didn't need it to begin with, but I think that and puck over glass give more headaches than, uh, than actual value to the game. So I'd, I'd start with those. Interesting. Uh, last one for me, and uh, thanks for your time here. Um, yeah, officiating in the league is... Uh, Runs hot and cold. And um, as Emily noted before, it'd be good to know what goes on in these guys' heads. Do you wish that there was more interaction between fans and media and the officials? Or is the NHL correct in kind of keeping these guys away from the spotlight? The NHL's opinion on this has always been the less you know about these guys and, 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 uh, and, and you know, keep them off the record, the less problems they're going to be with calls for hypocrisy and things like that. Do you wish that they had more of a platform to explain what they do, or do you think it's better that we don't know much more than we already know about them? I think it would be better if they did have a platform. Uh, I definitely understand where the league's coming from as far as protecting the officials and uh, you know, giving that ability to make calls without having to answer to uh, you know, every sports writer, every coach. Uh, I, I think where fans get frustrated with officiating and want to see officials, you know, did this guy get fined for blowing this call? Or was, why is there no punishment? Why are officials not held accountable? I think that part has to stay private. Uh, there are things that happen behind the scenes, obviously playoff selections uh, and who works the postseason. That's a, that's a pretty big deal, and, and that's at the league's discretion based on how the officials have performed over the course of the year. But I think when it comes to those things, that's best left private. We don't need to see it. You know, it's going to undermine people's confidence if they know that a particular official has been fined for missing a call recently or something like that. So I don't think that would have a positive impact anywhere. But I do think that giving the officials the ability to speak out, now whether it's on a, an individual basis, if certain refs are comfortable and, and others aren't, or, you know, putting that on the officiating supervisors, which are almost entirely retired NHL refs. Uh, but they're wa- monitoring each game. They're, they're watching what's going on. They're working with the on-ice crew. Uh, I don't think it would be crazy, and I think it would probably be very beneficial if the league could make those supervisors available, whether to a pool reporter for statements or, or just for general media inquiries, to provide that explanation, you know, to say, hey, I talked to the guys, here's why the call was made, and, and I think that would open it up a little bit more. It would give you some more explanation. I just hope that they would have them comfortable enough to say, you know what, our guys missed this call. And that's okay. It's going to happen. But, you know, sometimes you need to fess up and say hey, where they were, they didn't see it. They missed the call. They should have called that penalty. And, and I think sometimes that can allow everybody to move on instead of dragging out uh, call controversies for uh, extended periods of time. 
All right, Josh, before we let you go, I've got one quick hitter. I'm going to let sure. you have an opportunity to sound really smart in a couple months. <laughs> What's the one officiating controversy that's going to consume us all in the 2020 NHL playoffs? <laughs> oh, well, from a controversy standpoint, whatever it is, and uh, I can almost guarantee there, there's going to be a discussion about it. They'll make a rule for it for next season. So uh, whatever <laughs> it is, we'll, uh, we'll come back and, and haunt us all. But uh, sadly, the, the way things have been going and the way things seem to build off of previous controversies, you know, officiating review now has turned into the missed stoppage review. So I think uh, at some point we're going to end up with a, uh, a, you know, a puck played with a high stick in the offensive zone that got missed and leads to a goal. I, I, I just feel like of all the calls that we make, the ones that haunt us the most are the ones that come back to video review. Oh, goody. So excited. <laughs> Hey, Josh, where can people find your stuff? Uh, follow Twitter, ScoutingTheRefs, uh, ScoutingTheRefs.com as well. So, uh, you know, log on there and feel free. You know, we love hearing questions. So uh, if you've got something, if you've got a rule that's bugging you or a, a play, certainly reach out to us on Twitter or, or visit ScoutingTheRefs.com and uh, hit us up, and we can uh, try to explain that as best we can. Cool, man. Keep up the great work, man. It's always fascinating. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for your support. Take care. Our thanks to Josh Smith of Scouting the Refs for joining us to talk about all things NHL officiating. Uh, the officiating, of course, a determining factor in all things that happen on the ice. So watch it down the stretch as we watch what have become quite interesting playoff races, Emily, in the last week and a half in both conferences. Oh, boy. Everything's on its head. The Calgary Flames are in first place in the Pacific as we do this podcast. They are a scant two points up on the last wild card, the Edmonton Oilers, um, which is nuts. Uh, 55, 55, 54, 54, 53. Those are the point totals for the Flames, Coyotes, Canucks, Golden Knights, and Oilers right now in the Pacific. And oh, by the way, the Winnipeg Jets are a point behind Edmonton for the last wild card as we do the podcast. Oh, by the way, the Nashville Predators are four points back of the Edmonton Oilers for the last wild card. It's pretty crazy. Oh, by the way, the National Predators are also only six points back of third place in the Central Division. In the East, it's kind of nutty. If you look at what's happening at the wild card, Carolina, 56, Florida, 53, Flyers, 52, Blue Jackets, 52, the resurgent 6-2-2 two two in their last 10 Blue Jackets. And then there's, you know, a bit of a drop-off to the Sabres and the Rangers. Uh, we have five questions about the state of the playoff races that Emily and I are now going to answer. Question number one, Emily. Who are the 2019 Blues in 2020? I.e., what team is making that second-half run and hoisting the Stanley Cup? Who you got? So my easy pick, there's two teams that profile pretty well. One would be the Predators, and I think they've got an easier path. Um, being, as you mentioned, they're only six points out of just the Central Division race. They fired their coach. Uh, you know, they've got a guy now that maybe can make something out of Kyle Turris at a $6 million salary after they clearly can't unload that. Uh, but the even better pick would be the San Jose Sharks, who are negative <laughs> 27 in goal differential. Uh, we can blame that mostly on their poor school tending. They've already made their coaching change. It didn't uh, bring an immediate spark, but They've got a shot because they've got the personnel that we saw in the beginning of the season and said, this is a veteran team that can make the playoffs again and can contend for a Stanley Cup. They haven't been in that team so far. I think the loss of Pavelski, Don Skoy to a little bit of a lesser degree, 
did affect them. They're without Logan Couture right now. But that would be the team that would be like, holy cow, how did they do it? How did they climb out of this hole? I agree, actually. I, I think the Sharks might be that team um, for two reasons. First of all, and I said this when DeBoer got fired, they're ridiculously streaky. Just all, always have been streaky, can go on these runs where all of a sudden they look dominant. And those runs can happen if they get competent goaltending. And maybe you know Aaron Dell can give them that if he, in fact, is going to now take the majority of the starts. Um, the other thing that I, I wonder about with the Sharks, like you said, Couture's out for a while. I wonder if their personality changes to where they're playing a different style, maybe a more defensively responsible style, maybe a more conservative style, to try to compensate for their top center being out of the lineup. And, I, and if that's the case, I do wonder whether that will actually be more effective uh, for San Jose than the style in which they were playing for a while. Uh, they won a couple in a row. Their un- underlying numbers aren't great. Their goal differential is atrocious. But as you mentioned, I mean, seven points out of the last wild card spot is not an insurmountable amount at this point in the season. So I'm with you. Maybe it's just our hearts making a wish here, Emily. But the San Jose Sharks. We want Greg to sleep in his own bed during the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For the sake of me, you know, giving, giving sneakers belly rubs, let's hope the Sharks are this year's blues. What's the next question? All right. Question number two. Can the Rangers make the playoffs? Hmm. They do have the Jordan Bennington like rookie who's coming in with mm-hmm. some quiet confidence and the entire team behind him. Of course, it's a little more awkward because let's just say Hedrick Lundqvist is no Jake Allen. But mm-hmm. Igor, I'm not going to pronounce his name because he's waffled on how he wants it pronounced, <laughs> either the Russian or North American spelling, and I'm going to butcher both, has looked pretty good. And the Raiders have come up behind him. And look. They've got some offensive talent there that can score. Artemi Panarin is just been an absolute delight. You got, mm-hmm. you know, blue liners like Tony D'Angelo and Adam Fox looking like they can contribute defensively. Um, the real question for this team is what do they do at the trade deadline? Chris Kreider is like the number one guy and everybody's bored. Um, but the Rangers also see him and like, hey, he plays really well with our team and he's a productive player. Maybe we re-sign him. Um, mm-hmm. I do not think that they make the playoffs. I think... Uh, my heart is the little Emily Kaplan who grew up a Rangers fan. would love to see it happen. I think they're probably a year or two away. Um, that said, there's a chance. 23.3% chance as we do the podcast today to make the playoffs. That, that puts them behind Philly. It puts them behind Montreal. It obviously puts them behind Florida, the Jackets. and see, it uh, put them ahead of Montreal because Montreal just seems like a mess to me right now. <laughs> um, I'll say this. If the Rangers somehow make the playoffs, Panarin's walking away with the Hart Trophy. That's for sure. Uh, he's been insanely good. I mean, they're, good luck finding anybody complaining about that contract now. Good, good luck. Keep searching. Um, cause he's been insanely good. I, they fall short and I, and I hope that I, I, in my conversations in the past with Jeff Gordon, I think that there is a plan that they will stick to. And I think that plan probably involves them trading Chris Kreider at the deadline. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned before during the Shiro segment, as the Devils fan, I cast a jealous eye at what the Rangers are doing right now because they have built this thing real quick and real good uh, to the point where uh, a, a prospect like Lias Anderson can be a bust 
for them and it doesn't even affect their stride. Like they've just got so much talent right now for now and for the future on that roster, including three guys in goal that are all better than what the Devils have. It's insane. Uh, so yeah, Rangers miss out, but that's all right. The future is bright on Broadway. I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to anxiously the Jeff Gordon press conference where he explains what the heck his plan is with this goaltending carousel because I'd love to know. All right. Question number three. Are the Leafs screwed without Morgan Riley? (sighs) Now, Morgan Riley is out eight weeks with a fractured foot. And before you ask, no, he did not break that foot or ankle when he was victim to that Connor McDavid goal (laughs) a week earlier. Uh, it actually came on another incident that said, uh, this is a huge loss because we know this is a team that has defensive deficiencies. We've seen them be exposed. Look no further than that game against the Florida Panthers this past week where I don't know who was playing on defense. Um, and Morgan Riley is quite frankly their best defender. So this is a big loss. Rasmus Sandin, they're going to burn his, the first year of that entry level contract. He's going to get an extended, it's not even an audition. He just gets to play. Um, I don't know if this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I think they've looked so dynamite offensively, and Freddie Anderson has another gear he can go to that those things can overcompensate a shaky blue line, but it sure is problematic. You hit the nail on the head, though. Like If you are looking for one team that can score their way out of a defensive loss like this, it might be the Leafs. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis Dermott's the most interesting guy for me right now. He's going to be called upon to do a lot more. Uh, it could be with Justin Hole, it could be with Tyson Berry, but I think that he's going to be real key with Riley out of the lineup. They will get they will get Jake Muzzin back pretty soon, I think, maybe after the uh, All Star break. Um, but yeah, this is this is pins and needles time for a, a Maple Leafs team that really looked like had it started to turn the corner under Sheldon Keefe, and a, a gigantic injury could pull the thread in the sweater and have them unravel. Uh, they are a point up on the Florida Panthers as we do this podcast. The good news for the Leafs, obviously, is that um, if you can hold the the Kitty Cats at bay, uh, there's a seven point spread between them and the next team in their division. So. Uh, do I think this means they fall out of the top three? It puts them in danger, and you don't want to be in that wild card mix if you're the Leafs. But if you can maintain that spot, uh, at least until Riley kind of comes back at the beginning of March, then I think they're going to be all right. But, uh, but yeah, not what you want to see when you're already a team with some deep defici- deficiencies on the blue line. Question number four. Are we going to get a Flames Oiler playoff series? And, oh, my gosh, is this the time that we talk about Zach Cashin? And Matthew Kachuk and what that would mean if the two of them went head to head in the playoffs. Greg, I'm going to let you begin here. It would be awesome. I just don't, I, I think the, the chances of the Flames and Oilers finishing second and third in the Pacific are pretty slim. Um, you know, in the case of the, of the Oilers still wondering whether or not they're going to be a playoff team, although hopefully so, because Lord knows we need Connor McDavid on that, that, with that spotlight on him. Yeah. Let's talk about Cassie and Kachuk. First of all, Love Kachuk. Love Matthew Kachuk. Matthew Kachuk is, um, what Brad Marchand used to be before he, you know, cleaned up his act. We'll get to Marchand, by the way, a little bit later on the, <laughs> the shootout attempt later. Uh, the hits that he delivered on Cassian, the first one, um, that got a lot of attention where Cassian's head sort of whiplashes on it. I didn't like it. I understand player safety's notion that there wasn't head contact. So it was a clean hit. But to me, I look at that and I look at a player in kind of a prone position and I say to myself, isn't that the thing we're trying to prevent? But they yep. had no problem with it. And so you got to go by their letter of the law. Um, 
And then Cassian deserved what he got for, you know, popping off after that. But, uh, it was a glorious thing to watch and a rivalry that has been absolutely rekindled in a major way, um, this season. It's, it's awesome to see. And, and it'd be awesome for the NHL if those two teams met in the playoffs. I just think the percentages are pretty low. I just have to say, we are gifted with the Kachuk brothers. <laughs> we obviously don't fully appreciate them because they're stashed away in Canada. But Matthew Kachuk single-handedly is responsible for like three of the last four great rivalries in the yeah. NHL. Um, him versus the Kings and Drew Doughty has been absolutely incredible as well. So um, thank you, Kachuk. Thank you, Keith Kachuk, for bringing us these two sons. <laughs> right. All righty. Question number five and the final one. Out of Vegas and Nashville, who should we be most worried about? Oof. Oh, you know. All right. Well, here's what I think. Yeah. I think Vegas needs to go out and get a defenseman. I I think they're in the market for one. They are. But I think their blue line could use some help. Like, look, this is a team since its inception that's never had a true number one shutdown guy, and they've always done it by committee. Um, unfortunately, their committee is just a little thin right now. And, and not necessarily that they need that true shutdown guy, but they could use a second-pairing defenseman real bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Predators, their big if for me is can Coach John Hines get something out of Kyle Terrace. I mentioned it earlier, but like that's a huge X factor for this team. Like, Look, I think goaltending is going to revert back to what it should be. This defensive group is great. But like if you can get Kyle Terrace going and that $6 million isn't counting against you as total dead weight – this could be a really good team. And for whatever reason, Turris hasn't been great in his first couple of years in Nashville. They've been trying to get rid of him pretty much the last 18 months. But maybe he can salvage him here. Yeah, I have I have more faith in the Golden Knights right now making the playoffs. First of all, they're they're number one in the league in expected goals at 5-on-5, five five, um, which tells you that they've just experienced maybe some bad puck luck uh, in the first half of the season and not being better offensively. Um, you know, overall, I think the more impressive team and, and like you said, they've got a ton of assets that they can flip around and try to get what they need to bolster that blue line. They, you know, we've, we've been saying for a long, we've said, we've been saying this since they lost to the Capitals, uh, that they need to get that, that, you know, big name, number one guy type player on the blue line. Probably not going to happen at the trade deadline, but certainly can find someone that can help them in a significant way. So, a bit more faith for me in the Golden Knights and the National Predators. Uh, if you're the Predators, by God, what a disaster it would be if you fired, fire Peter Laviolette, hire John Hines, and then miss the playoffs. Uh, I don't quite know what even the reaction locally would be to that, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, a bit more faith in, in the I Knights. I think it would right just now. be blame Laviolette. He got us into this mess and yeah, used right. him as a scapegoat. Or, or just to say it was the goaltending or whatever. I'm sure there's a billion different ways, injuries or whatever that you could probably spin it, but, uh, but yeah, you don't you don't fire fire Peter Laviolette that then miss the playoffs. That's for sure. All right, now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly our look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Oh. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. When we look at the foibles and hyperboles and mistakes that are made in the hockey media, like for example. Forgetting about all of the influential women on your influential people in hockey list. The Hockey News put out its annual People of Power and Influence in the Hockey Industry list. It has a 100 people on it. 96 of them were men. Uh, 
There was also a top 15 in media that had one woman on it. Um, that was Cassie Campbell Pascal, who was also on the top 100 list. Um, there was a list of 15 non-NHL executives. Somehow Danny Ryland didn't make that list, despite being the commissioner of the National Women's Hockey League. Uh, Jana Hefford also did not make the list. Um, it is, it, it, it's stunning to me. Like, so the women that made the top 100 list were, uh, Campbell Pascal, uh, Hillary Knight, uh, Kim Davis of the NHL, and, uh, and Haley Wickenheiser made the list. And you think about all of the people that could have made that cut. Um, here's one that absolutely stuns me. They have Terry Pagula at like number 30 something, and Kim Pagula, who if you ask literally anybody, Within the orbit of the Buffalo Sabres, who runs the team? Why it's Kim Pagula doesn't not make the list. Um, you know, Alexandra Mandrecki, who, who the Seattle franchise hired basically straight away to be their analytics guru, does not make the list. Barb Underhill, skating guru, credited by so many people in this league for improving their game, does not make the list. Julie Grant of the NHL, in charge of concussion stuff, does not make the list. Like, I understand that the immediate default argument is, well, when do you want a quota? No, I just want you to expand your view beyond every, you know, dude who's a CEO, dude who's a GM, dude who's an owner, and just default setting to those people being on these lists. Because you know what? Guess what? I was on this list. It's a nonsense list. You could literally put anybody on this list if you wanted to, but you chose to put four women on it out of a hundred. And that's crazy. You know, you said you were shocked by it. I'm not. Um, I think this is a reflection of the views of women and women's hockey particularly. Because you mentioned, you know, yes, Danny Ryland should be on this list. Yes, Jaina Heffer should be on this list. They are the two women who essentially are figureheads guiding this really tricky landscape of women's professional hockey right now. But this is just how we view women's hockey. This is, this is how it is. It's institutional, you know, bias that comes from media. It comes from other areas. And look, we're, you and I are both guilty of it as well. I don't cover women's hockey as well as I should have. I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they can't even be recognized like this shows the uphill battle that we have to fight. Yeah, and the biggest the biggest failing for me on women's hockey, and I'm really admit that is that you know I cover it more much more from the business perspective and from maybe the 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 personality perspective than I do the actual gameplay perspective. And I mean, you know, we're as guilty as anybody of not giving the NWHL uh, a certain level of credibility by just kind of you know covering it from a well, what does this mean for women's hockey? And here's an interesting player story kind of aspect versus which team is actually leading in the standings. That's that's you know that's obvious. Uh, but again, like hundred people on your list and four of them are women. Like there is ample and it's not even, it's not even like, you know, should we force somebody on there to no? there's people that are eminently more qualified. You put Don Cherry on the list as a person of power and influence. He lost all his power and influence this year. Congratulations to the hockey news. Now it's time to puck headlines. Uh, Dateline, Brad Marchand. Jesus. <laughs> the Bruins star lost his team the shootout against the Flyers with the worst attempt of all time when his stick nudged the puck forward and then he skated by it. Emily, your reaction? For a guy that has done so much for his reputation in the last six years of becoming a pest to one of the best offensive talents in the league, uh, this sure rewinded him back quite a, quite a bit. 
It is. Uh, it will go into the pantheon of the worst shootout attempts of all time. And uh, if you did a, a search for the word karma uh, and Brad Marchand, <laughs> um, you'd come up with a lot of hits uh, from you watching the game last night. Speaking of the Bruins, Dateline, the All-Star game. Goalie Tuka Rask is the latest player to bail on the 2020 All-Star game in St. Louis, uh, citing a desire to rest up and re- rejuvenate and spend time with family. The interesting twist here for Rask isn't simply just that he played a lot of hockey in the playoffs last year and leading the Bruins to the final, but that the Bruins' bye week actually falls during the All-Star break. So the question here is, should the NHL have some sort of exemption uh, when it comes to that one-game suspension these players have to deal with for skipping the All-Star game after they're selected? Should they exempt players that go to the cup final the previous season? And should they exempt players whose bye weeks fall during the All-Star break? Because that's obviously not their fault. Yeah, well, firstly, I think it's kind of hilarious that Tuka Rask is going to have to serve a one-game suspension because if you've been following the Bruins the last two years, he's pretty much splitting starts with um, his partner anyway, so it doesn't really matter for the Bruins at all. That said, uh, yeah, I think that these are the type of things that we should be looking into certain exemptions. Some people have mentioned even like a 30-plus exemption or one-time only of a guy can pass, so therefore you don't have Alex Ovechkin two years in a row. Like maybe once every three years you can pass. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you've served a certain amount already, you get some exemptions. But yeah, I'm all for these type of ideas so we don't get another year like this year where everyone's like, well, I've had such extraneous circumstances. I've had such extraneous circumstances, and nobody really wants to play. That said, we have the All-Star game in somewhere other than St. Louis. Maybe people are a little more excited. Would we be having this conversation if the All-Star game was in L.A., Tampa, or Vegas? Good question. I am so sorry to everyone from St. Louis listening. Greg and I love St. Louis. We're speaking for the players, not us. I, I, I'm looking forward to going back to St. Louis, especially uh, because uh, you'll be there. We can hang out, and I can show you all. We I can show you all the haunts that I discovered before you came to the final last year, and then we can revisit some of the haunts that we went to during the final last year. So it'll be good times. Um, Dateline again, the All Star Game. Emily and I were your news source for All Star Game breaking news this week. Emily had the story about the women's three on three event that will occur at the skills competition. And I had the story about, well, one of the more wacky ideas the NHL has come up with in recent memory in which the players will shoot pucks from the stands over the fans onto the ice at targets, a.k.a. Top Golf meets hockey. Let's start with you. What are your thoughts on your three-on-three tournament you broke today, uh, broke this week? Yeah, well, I think both of these fall under the same thing. Ever since the players said they didn't want to do those goals with props or do some of the wacky things that the KHL does, the NHL has been <laughs> looking for ways to make this game entertaining, and I think it has to constantly evolve. So giving the women a bigger spotlight and actually promoting their game with a three-on-three is great. Now, look, I don't know how the NHL is going to promote it. I don't know how, the, uh, how NBC is going to promote it. We shall see. The pressure is now on them to make sure that it gets the proper eyes, but... I think that's a step in the right direction. And the wacky top golf thing, again, step in the right direction. We're probably going to be talking about it on ESPN shows today. It's probably going to be a viral moment. Like those are things that the NHL needs. So I give a lot of credit to the organizers of this event. Like Patrick Burke's really into this in the NHL office. Steve Mayer, I think he might have even been the one that come up with the top golf idea. Uh, those guys should be applauded. I just, 
I just hope nobody gets hit with a puck. <laughs> it's like they're they're taking the netting from behind the goal and they're going to put it on top of the fans, kind of like when you're at a Major League Baseball game and, and the netting is, you know, behind home plate mm-hmm. uh, for foul balls. I, I just, you know, I think it's going to be awesome. I think fans are going to be into it. I think the players are very much going to be into it from what I've heard. They are very much hardly endorsing this event. It's the NHL. Just don't want anybody to get hit with the puck. <laughs> go to commercial. Go to commercial. That's uh, the last thing I want. Is that finally uh, Dateline Houston? As much as I'd like this to be about uh, you know relocating a Canadian team to Houston, this is actually about Houston in another sport. Which is, what are your thoughts on the Astros cheating scandal? One year suspensions handed out to the GM and coach, then they were unceremoniously dismissed by their owner. Uh, this is all stems from the whole stealing signs in real time through video equipment and then banging on a trash can to let people know what pitches were coming and that kind of thing. Are you one of those, if you're not cheating, you ain't trying types, Emily? Or are you one of these people that think that this taints everything the Astros did? It taints some of it for sure. And I have to say, I've only read excerpts, but that report that Major League Baseball produced is scathing. It is judgy, it is evil, it is conniving, it's a really, really good read, um, you know, the parts that I've read. That said, um, you know, I, I think what was most interesting about it is that A.J. Hinch, like, wasn't all in on this and, like, did certain things to even try to sabotage it. He, like, broke the, like, machine a couple times to show protest, and he still got punished. So uh, it just shows that even if you look the other way, you're not safe. Yeah, and for those people that are saying... Oh yeah, sure. You do this and then you ban Pete Rose for life. Pete Rose bet on his own team while he was managing the team. He manipulated his lineup to help enrich himself. I, 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 I will go to my grave being like Pete Rose. The only way Pete Rose should be in Cooperstown is selling his autograph for a hundred dollars at a card show down the street from the Hall of Fame for what he did. And I don't care if he did it. That's the other thing too that was interesting. Like the argument of like, if you do it as a manager, but you don't do it as a player, you should, he bet on baseball as a player too. This has been Baseball Corner. All right. Now it's time for the rant line. Greg, Emily, it's Justin, uh, the Ducks fan who's still waiting for an all-star game. But regardless <laughs> of that, um, the all-star game jerseys are terrible and boring and your fame logo here on them which is bad, and they should be better, though I don't really know how they could be better. Anyway, not really much of a rant, but idea, because everyone wants the Australian game to be meaningful or different. I think it would be way interesting if we somehow could hook up with, like, the KHL or La Liga, the Weege or whatever it is in Finland, and do some cool exhibition where their champion comes over and plays, or they put a European all-star team together versus all all-star team together, and, yeah, we have the better players or whatever. But it would really make it more interesting and kind of grow the game because then you'd have Europeans involved and they'd have a stake in it. And then we would have a stake in it. And I always thought it'd be cool, maybe if not, to do like a all-star game to start the year instead of at the middle of the break and do the all-star game as a way of getting into it. Like the Blues take on the all-stars or the champion for the KHL plays the Blues in an exhibition series for like a Champions League final or something like that. There you go. Maybe something fun to talk about. Maybe not, but... Thanks, you guys are awesome. Bye. Or maybe not. The NHL hates the KHL, man. That, like they, they, they will never do. It's like, you know, it's like 
WWF and WCW doing business in the 1990s. Like they're just, they're just they don't want to work with each other. Um, I, mean, I like outside of the box ideas. I do think Emily, like next year, we're gonna we're gonna see the All Star Games configuration change pretty dramatically away from these divisional formats. So at the very least, we'll get that. Yeah. Um, I think next year could be a change, as Bill Daly alluded to last week, of an international flavor. I love when they call it international flavor, by the way. It just evokes like we're going to start getting like pierogies and borscht or something (laughs) kind of international and authentic in the press box instead of fried raviolis yet again. Exactly. (laughs) All right. That's the podcast. Thanks to Josh from Scouting the Refs for joining us. Thanks to the Devils for firing Ray Shiro and giving us something to talk about. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.